Thank you for joining us today for this life-changing message from River of Life. If you are ever in our area, we would love for you to join us. For more information, visit us at rolcrawfordville.com. That's rolcrawfordville.com. Or download our app in the App Store under ROL Crawfordville. Now, let's join Derek Gray as he teaches from the Word of God. Uh, as most of you know, we just finished uh, a year-long study in the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, in a few weeks, we're going to start another uh, extended study. And uh, you'll have to wait to see what that is. But in the interim, uh, there are a few things that I want to cover over the next uh, few weeks. And the first thing I wanted to do is I want to do a short three-week study on, as you can see from our uh, title slide up here, on the Bible. Now, I mentioned last week in introducing this that we are incredibly blessed uh, to have, not only to have the Bible in the English language, but to have it multiple translations. Uh, not only that, we can consume it, we can read it in a book, we can read it on our devices, we can listen to it like in an audio format. Uh, Granted, there has never been a generation, and I'm talking about ever on this planet, that has as much access to the Bible as the one we're living in right now. That's how blessed we are. Yet with all that, there is a lot that Christians don't know about this book that they hopefully are reading every single day. And so the next three weeks, we're going to look at three different things. The first thing we're going to look at tonight is we're going to look at how you got your Bible. That English Bible, whether you're reading King James or New King James or ESV or NASB or NIV, how did you get that English Bible? What's the history behind it? And a lot of Christians just don't know this. And I've covered this uh, before, probably about six or seven years ago. And uh, this is going to be part one tonight. And the second thing we're going to look at the following week is why you can trust your Bible. And here's what I mean by that. Let's say you're out talking to somebody, and as, as we often do, you might say, well, the Bible says, or Jesus says, and that person may respond to you and say something like this, well, you know, the Bible has been copied and recopied and translated and changed so many times, who knows what Jesus really said. Now, folks, that is an outright lie, but most Christians don't know how to defend that. And I'm going to show you next week how, how, how to defend that. And then the third thing I want to, and this was really the impetus for this whole thing, is one of the questions I get asked a lot is, which Bible translation should I, should I read, especially with new Christians? What's the best Bible translations? A lot, most Christians don't know. Why are there so many translations? What are the different types of translations? What's the best translation for me to use? And I'm going to answer that question uh, in the third week. But tonight, we're going to start here. Now, this is going to be a little bit of like a, if, you, if you've been out of high school a long time, this is going to be like going back to high school. This is going to be kind of a, a history lesson, but a history lesson about how you got your English Bible. Now, we're going to be talking about some dates down through history. And so I just want to make sure we're all clear uh, about some terms that we're going to use. And most of you probably know this, but just in case you don't. Uh, history is divided into two parts as far as the timeline goes. And the dividing line between those two parts is the birth of Jesus. Everything that happened before his birth is referred to as B.C. 
which means before Christ, and everything that happened after his birth is referred to as A.D. Uh, why they didn't use A.C., I have no idea. But uh, A.D. stands for Anno Domini. It's a Latin term, which means year of our Lord. So you may hear people talk about 500 B.C., which is 500 years before Christ, and you may hear them talk about 500 A.D., which is 500 years after Christ. So we'll use some of that terminology uh, here tonight. Now, we're going to be talking about how we got our English Bible, but the Bible itself is way, way, way older than the, uh, than the English language. So we got to start with where the Bible starts, and that is with the Old Testament. And we got to go all the way back to the very beginning. Now, the first scripture written down or composed uh, into scripture is generally considered what to be what we know today as the first five books of the Bible. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, there are certainly, uh, some scholars believe the book of Job is probably the oldest book in the Bible, and there's good reasons for that, and you can go uh, Google that and study it if you want to. But as far as the, the compilation of Scripture, it's generally agreed that those, uh, f- those first five books, what is known as the Pentateuch, um, which penta means five books, okay? Now, originally, and this is important, when it was written down, it was just one long book. In fact, it would stay one long book for 1,200 years. So, it would, so, so for 1,200 years, it was just one really long book, and the Jews referred to it as the Torah. You'll hear that, uh, that term used sometimes, and that's just a, a Hebrew term. It means the law. Now, we have to ask this question because if we want to date it. Who wrote it? Who wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, or who wrote uh, the Torah? Well, the Torah itself uh, seems to infer very strongly that Moses wrote it. Now, there's a lot of different verses you can go look at. I'm going to give you three. Uh, one out of uh, Exodus 17:14, it says, The Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book. Uh, Numbers 33, 2, it says, Moses wrote down their starting places by command of the Lord. And then Deuteronomy 31, 9, it says, Moses wrote this law and gave it to the, to the priest. If I start dancing, that's just this, <laughs> there's nothing I can do about it. So you can see from that, it, it seems to infer that it doesn't just come out and say Moses wrote it, but it certainly seems to infer it fairly strongly. But here's the greatest evidence that Moses wrote it, and that is the New Testament writers, including Jesus himself, gives very clear testimony that Moses wrote the Torah. I'll give you just the words of Jesus, Matthew 19, 8. Jesus said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. Now, right there, he's referring to Deuteronomy chapter 24. In John 7, 19, he says this, has not Moses given you the, the law? And remember, the Torah is the law. Mark eleven twenty six. 26, in, in disputing with the Sadducees, Jesus said this, as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the burning bush, and there, by the way, he's referring to Exodus chapter 3. Luke also refers to him as the author in the book of Acts, uh, as well as Paul in Romans and 1st and 2nd Corinthians. So uh, it's pretty clear that that he wrote it. Now, that leads to an obvious question. 
You might say, well, okay, I understand how he could have wrote Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. And by the way, those all happened within his lifetime. But how in the world did he write Genesis? How in the world does he write a book where things happen uh, centuries and even millennia before he was born? Well, the answer is that is we don't know. Uh, The Bible does not tell us um, anything like that. It could have come from text that were passed down from Abraham or Noah, maybe even Adam himself. Um, Or when he was up on Mount Sinai, he spent a lot of time up there with God. God could have just downloaded it and said, this is how it all shaped out. We don't know. So that's a question that we cannot answer. But regardless of how it came about, Scripture is clear that Moses is the author of the Torah. Now, that allows us to date, because we know roughly when Moses lived, um, that allows us to date the writing of the Torah uh, back to the 15th century B.C. Now, I'm not going to use centuries tonight, because everybody's always trying to figure out what year it is. I'm just going to use years. I'm going to put that little C in front of it, which means circa, which means around or about that year. So if you go all the way back to 1450 BC, 1450 years before Christ, uh, you've got the Torah, which is written, of course, in the uh, Hebrew, which is the language of the Jews. Now, over the next several centuries, and I say probably about 900 years, more and more books are added. Uh, to the Torah. You've got the historical books, books like uh, Joshua and Judges and Kings and Chronicles and Samuel. You've got the prophetic books, books like Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel and, and Micah. You've got books, poetic books, Psalms, Proverbs, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. So what happens is by the time you get to 500 B.C., about 500 years before Jesus is born, you've got the complete Old Testament. All 39 books of the Old Testament are all gathered together, and it's one book, and it is written in Hebrew. Okay, so at 500 years before Christ. Now, this leads us to the very first Bible translation. The very first Bible translation. Now, this translation, we don't know 100% whether this is true, But this translation is said to have occurred when an Egyptian king by the name of Philadelphus, and we know that he reigned from 285 to 246 B.C. Uh, There there used to be, if you want to Google something really interesting, there used to be a library in Alexandria. And it was, they said it was amazing. It had these incredible ancient texts in it, and it ended up catching fire and burning, and a lot of that was lost. But at that time, it is said that he wanted a copy of the Hebrew Bible uh, to put in his library there in Alexandria, and that's the, the story. Regardless of what the impetus was, 72 translators, one, uh, six from each of the tribes of Israel for a total of 72, uh, they all came to this little island called Pharos off the coast of Egypt, and they sat down there over a period of time, and they translated the Torah from Hebrew into Greek. And they ended up naming it the Septuagint. The word Septuagint means 70. Now, how did they get from 72 to 70? Nobody seems to know. Maybe the uh, the, the Roman numeral is, numeral is LXX for 70. Maybe somebody just thought, man, them two eyes are just giving me a lot of trouble. Let's just drop them. Um, but for whatever reason, it came to be known as the Septuagint, which is the 70. Now, 
it was during this translation into the Greek that they decided, hey, let's break the Torah up into five books and let's give them the names that we know them by uh, today. So it was during that translation of the Greek Septuagint that we, the books we know today is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, uh, came into, uh, came into being. So, you started out in 1450. You've got the Torah in Hebrew. You go to 500 years before Jesus. You've got the old, the complete Old Testament. And now, at, at 250 uh, BC, you've got the Torah translated into Greek. Now, over the next hundred years or so, uh, scholars kept translating the Old Testament. So they translated, uh, as I said, the, uh, uh, the historical books, the, the poetic books, the prophetic books. So by the time you get to around 150 years before Jesus is born, you've got the entire Old Testament in Hebrew, and you've got the entire Old Testament in uh, Greek. Now, this is a really important question, Okay. Why did they choose Greek? Because the answer to this question is going to be, it's going to be asked over and over and over down through the centuries. Why Spanish? Why English? Why Italian? Why French? Why Chinese? Why did they pick Greek for the very first translation? Well, you got to keep in mind, we're looking at this nice linear line, right? But behind this line, there's a whole lot of history going on. And around 330 BC, this guy, and you might have heard of him by the name of Alexander the Great, conquered basically the whole world, or at least the civilized world. And one of the things, one of the consequences of him conquering the known world is that Greek became the common language that everybody spoke. By the way, it's no different from today. Today, what is the most common language in the world? It's English. Why? You know why? It's because of the British Empire. The British Empire conquered and conquered, and they went all over the world, and English spread and spread. And, of course, when America rises up, it just keeps going because we were the strongest country in the world. Whoever has the power makes the rules, right? And that's the way it's always worked. Well, that's the way it worked then. Because Alexander the Great, the Greek Empire, was in control of everything, Greek became the common language. It was the language that most people in the world spoke. So if you're going to translate something, you want people to read it, right? It makes much sense to translate into a language that 20 people spoke at the time. You want everybody to read it. And that is why they chose Greek. Now, there's another reason that the Jews wanted it taken into Greek. From 600 B.C. to 300 B.C., Israel's conquered multiple times. They're conquered in 586 B.C. by Nebuchadnezzar. Then they're conquered by uh, the Persians. Then they're conquered by Alexander the Great. So their Jews are just being dispersed all over the world, right? And all of these Jews, as time goes by, you get to these third and fourth generations, and these people can't speak uh, Hebrew anymore. It's no different than today, right? Let's say, for example, somebody comes over, a couple come over from Mexico. And uh, they're here in America, and they have children, and their children go to American schools. Well, those children might, they certainly will probably speak Spanish, and they might write and read read and write Spanish. But by the time you get to the grandchildren or the great-grandchildren, trust me, those kids ain't reading and writing Spanish anymore. They're Everybody with me? They're fully assimilated. Well, that's what happened to the Jews. 
as they were dispersed across the world, they couldn't read Hebrew anymore. So they couldn't read the Bible. So when they sat down, the Jews, and says, okay, we want to do a translation. We want to do it in a language that our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren and our great-great-grandchildren can read. And that is why they chose uh, Greek, because it is the language spoken and understood by the most people. And that's going to come up over and over again. Now, this brings us forward about 250 years to 100 A.D., Now, again, we talked about the dividing line is the birth of Jesus. Um, Jesus comes, he he lives, he dies, he's resurrected, he ascends into heaven. Uh, The Gospels are written, Paul and other apostles write their letters. And by the time you get to 100 A.D., the entire New Testament is in Greek. So notice what you got right there. By the time you get to 100 A.D., you got the whole Bible. You got the entire Old Testament and you got the whole entire New Testament all written in Greek, which, by the way, is the language that most everybody across the world speaks. Now, here's the second question. Every New Testament writer wrote in Greek. When they sat down, when Matthew wrote, when Mark wrote, Luke wrote, they wrote in Greek. When Paul wrote his letters to Ephesus, Colossus, to to Philippi, to Corinth, he wrote in Greek. Why did they write in Greek? Well, again, even though the Romans, by the way, if you open the Gospels, you see Romans, Romans, Romans all the time. The fact was is that, yes, the Roman Empire was taken over, but the most common language still spoken in the empire was still Greek. It was the common language. And, and, and every one of those apostles, they want people to be able, I mean, who would write something people can't read? And this is the Gospels. They're talking about Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. They want everybody to read it. And so they write it in a language that can be understood by as many people as humanly possible. Now, let's jump forward about 300 years to 400 A.D. Now, between 200 B.C. and 400 A.D., there's this, uh, this dramatic change that's taking place across the civilized world. The Greek Empire is going down, and the Roman Empire is going up. And so what happens is the, the Romans, they build all these roads, they establish all these governments, um, and, 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 and the Greek, so the Greek language is being spoken less and less and less and less, and the Roman language is being spoken more and more and more. And the language of the Romans is the language of Latin. So in the Roman Empire, if you wrote books, they were written in Latin. If you wrote legal documents like wills and contracts, they were written in Latin. It, government edicts or proclamations were all done in Latin. It was the language of the Roman Empire. So what happens as you get into around 300, 350, in that range, uh, Latin begins to replace Greek as the most common language of the civilized world. So Christianity is spreading like crazy. I mean, it's going all over the place now. And it becomes evident to the church that, hey, we need a Latin version of the Bible. More and more people are speaking Latin. We need a Latin version of the Bible. And so in 382 A.D., the church commissions a man by the name of Jerome 
to provide a definitive Latin version. Now, there were some versions out there floating around that people just kind of took it on themselves to do. And the church said, no, we, we need to have a definitive Latin version. And so Jerome produces this version. It's called the Latin Vulgate. And you might have heard that. And by the, word, by the way, the word Vulgate is in Latin means vulgar. And today, vulgar means nasty. But back then, vulgar just meant common. It's just common Latin. And again, why did they do it? Why did they translate it into uh, Latin? Because they wanted ordinary Christians to be able to pick up the Bible and read the Word of God. In fact, one of Jerome's famous quotes is this, Ignorance of the Scriptures is ignorance of Christ. In other words, if you can't read the Bible, how can you know Jesus? And so it was going off. By the way, right after this happened, so, so around 400 A.D., Latin, the, the Latin Vulgate, Vulgate becomes the Bible of the church. If you went to a church, that's the Bible you would use. Um, if you went to a cathedral, that was the Bible they would use. Or if you went to a local village church where there was a, a, a priest, you would, uh, that's the Bible that they would be uh, using. So you're, here we are, 400 A.D., and you've got the Old Testament and the New Testament translated into Latin. So now we got the Bible in Hebrew, we got the Bible in Greek, and now we got the entire Bible in Latin, three different languages. And it's taken off. There's this guy, and I, and I don't have time tonight to cover him. There's a guy by the name of Euphilus. And Euphilus, uh, he, was, he, was, he, was a, he was born a Goth. The Goths were a, a Germanic tribe. Uh, you, if you go watch... Uh, Movies like Spartacus or Gladiator. You ever seen that opening scene of Gladiator where they're fighting the barbarians? Those are the Goths. And um, Euphilus was from those. Those were his people. And he had left there and been educated in, in Rome. And so he wanted his own people to have the Bible in their language. So even after, soon after Jerome translated it into Latin, Euphilus went back to Germania and started translating the Bible into Goth. By the way, he is the first known man to ever take a spoken language that was spoken only and create an alphabet and then turn it into the Bible. And he did that in 400 A.D. He was an incredible, incredible uh, man. In fact, we don't know really how many people back then did what he did. Just went back home and said, you know what, I'm going I'm to translate either parts or some of the Bible into the language of my people. But what it does show us that all through, uh, especially in the early part of the late B.C. and early A.D. centuries, Bible translation is an incredibly important thing for people to do. Whether it's the Jews going from Hebrew to Greek, whether it's Euphilus going from Latin to Goth, whether it's Jerome or the writers of the New Testament, they all wanted people to be able to read the Bible in their own language, okay? Now, then we hit a problem, okay? At 400 A.D., everything is cooking, We've got this new Bible in Latin. Euphilus is translating into Goth. And you would think, man, if, if it keeps going, by the time you get to 1382, we're going to have tons of translations. But it doesn't happen. A thousand years go by, roughly from 400 A.D. to 1400 A.D. And when over the, at the end of that thousand years, the Latin is still the same Bible it was a thousand years before. And nobody can read it anymore. Isn't that crazy? Nobody can read it. Latin, nobody speaks Latin anymore, but yet there's no English translations. There's, there's nothing. There's only Latin. So what happened? 
What happened to all this zeal for translating the Bible? Well, what happened was something called the Dark Ages, from 400 A.D. to around 1400 A.D. Now, what happened was this, is the Roman Empire collapsed. So you had this really strong central government that kept order. They built roads. They did all this stuff. And all of a sudden, it collapses. And everything just breaks apart into these little feudal kingdoms. And they're all fighting each other and killing each other. And it's just a, it's a mess, man. And, and, and languages begin to break up and begin to fragment. All of a sudden, you have all these new languages popping up like, like German and French and Anglo-Saxon and Italian and Spanish, languages that never even existed before. And, of course, Latin. I mean, who speaks Latin? I mean, it just, go, it just tanks. In fact, after a while... The only people, now listen, the only people who could speak Latin were the clergy. When you went to seminary, they would train you in Latin so that you could read the Bible. But they were the only ones. The guy, the farmer, the shoemaker, the homemaker, none of, nobody could read the Bible. Nobody could understand Latin. And unfortunately, the church of that period decided, you know what, this is pretty cool. If, if people can't read the Bible, we can just tell them anything we want. And that gives you power. You see, when you've got this holy book and nobody can read it, you can just, just make up anything you want. And they did. They made up a whole lot of stuff that wasn't in the Bible. And they, and they kept their thumb on people because they could just say, well, this is in the Scriptures. Or the Scriptures say, and nobody could read it. Now, this brings us to a man by the name of John Wycliffe in 1382 A.D. John Wycliffe is born in England around 1330. We're not sure of the exact date. He attended Oxford University at age 16. He earned his doctorate in divinity, and he remained at Oxford and was one of the leading theologians in England and uh, uh, was also a professor who taught uh, Latin and other um, uh, Bible subjects there at Oxford. And because he was educated, because he was an ordained priest, he could read Latin. So as he's studying the Bible and reading the Bible, he begins to realize, wait a minute. <laughs> I, all these things y'all are doing, they're not in the Bible. And so he kind of becomes this thorn in the church's saddle, so to speak. And he's saying, you can't do that. That's not in the Bible. You shouldn't be doing that. That's not in the Bible. And he's just constantly trying to change him. He's known as the, the morning star of the Reformation. The actual Reformation wouldn't happen for another 150 years. But he was the first guy that just stood up and said, what y'all are doing is not right. And over time, he began to see that the church is not going to change. If I'm going to change things, he said, he realized I need to take this Bible and I need to put it in the hands of, of just the common people. So what he did is he, remember the Latin Vulgate, everybody with me? So what he did, because he knew Latin and he knew English at the time was called Middle English, he translated the Bible from Latin into Middle English, and he did that in 1382. Now this is, an, this is one of his translations. By the way, these Bibles are still around, some of them. You can go online and read them. This is Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. This is in Middle English. One of the things I'll point out a little bit earlier, back in that day, there is no standard spelling like we have today. So when you sounded out a word, you just, whatever hit you, 
or any of y'all like that today? I know there's some of y'all. I, I knew that was coming. There's some of y'all think, yeah, I'm all over that. Well, that's the way it was back then. So this is Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. I'll try to read it for you. It says, many fold in many manners sometime, God speaking to, that word is fathers, in prophets, at the last in these days spake to us in the Son, whom he ordained heir of all things, by whom he made the worlds, the which he is the shining of glory and the figure of his substance, and bearing all things by the word of his virtue, making propitiation, that's, the, that's what that word is of sin, sitteth on the right half of majesty and high things, so much made better than angels, by how much he hath inherited a more different name before them. That's Wycliffe's Bible in Middle English. Now, it was an amazing thing because literacy rates back then were like maybe 10% of the people could read and write. So most people had no idea, could not read it, but boy, when, he, when you read it to them, they could understand it. And so he came up with this idea of these, what, what they call poor preachers. He recruited these people to take his Bible and just hit the countryside. And begin to go to these villages and just stand there and start reading the Bible. That's all they did. And the people absolutely loved it. And the church absolutely hated it. They hated it. They, they tried everything they could do to find every copy they could and, and destroy those copies. In fact, at, at, in 1382, they didn't really know what to do because nobody had ever done this before. But by the time you get... Uh, 25, 30 years into it, they have they passed a law in England where just reading an English Bible was outlawed and punishable by death. If you were just caught reading it, not producing it, just reading it. So they're burning these Bibles. They're they're trying to track down these people, these poor preachers, and and just trying to wipe them all that. This is one of the official edicts of the church at that time. It said this. By this translation, the scriptures have become vulgar and they are more available to laymen and even to women who can read than they were to learned scholars who have a high intelligence. So the pearl of the gospel is scattered and trodden underfoot by swine. That's what they, that's what the church felt at the, the time. Now you got to remember the printing press has not been invented yet. Each one of these Bibles took one year to make. They had to handwrite them. One year to make. Yet today, we still have 20 copies of the entire Bible in libraries and museums and around 90 copies of the New Testament. And, and Wycliffe's Bible has been translated online. You can go and look it up and, and, and read it. So Wycliffe does something that hasn't been done in 1,000 years. He translates the Bible. Now, he was a great man. He did a great thing. But there were some problems with what he did. First of all, what he did was not a, really a translation because a true translation from the, of the Bible always comes from the original. You don't translate from a translation. Everybody with me? Because any kind of problems that translation has, they just get exacerbated and ex you, you got to go back. But he couldn't because Greek at that time was a dead language. Greek would not be taught in the universities for another 80 years till around 1450. So he only knew Latin. He didn't know any Greek. So he couldn't. Even if he had had the manuscripts, he couldn't read them. So he could only do what he could uh, do. By the way, he ends up escaping martyrdom. Um, they, they expelled him from the university. Uh, 
there were all kind of charges made against him, but he ended up having a stroke the same year the Bible was released in 1382. Uh, he worked on it a little bit more, but he ended up having another stroke two years later, and, uh, and he died uh, in 1384. Uh, he escaped martyrdom. By the way, many of those preachers that went out in those villages did not. Uh, many of them were caught and burned at the, at the stake. The story is told, which is an amazing story, that a lot of those men, when their Bibles were confiscated, they, they would go and memorize entire books. And they would take on the name of the book. So, for example, they would go, get together and Mark would stand up and quote Mark. And Matthew, where's Matthew? There he is. He would stand up and quote the book of Matthew. That's how much they loved the Word of God. How much they were willing to do and die for the Word of God. So, Wycliffe escapes martyrdom, but the next guy is not going to be that lucky. And this brings us to around 1525 and a guy by the name of William Tyndale. Okay? Now, William Tyndale is an incredible, and again, I'm just going to skim the top. You, you really need to go read about this guy. Uh, he is by far the most influential Bible translator, not just influential Bible translator. Scholars will tell you there are two men that influenced the, the English language more than any other. One was Shakespeare, and the other was William Tyndale. And William Tyndale is far and above Shakespeare. He's the guy. I mean, he kind of started it all. Like Wycliffe, he was born in England in, in around 1494. Like Wycliffe, he went to Oxford at 16. This guy was smart. He spoke seven different languages. And he was fortunate that he was born at a time where there had been a renaissance of these ancient languages. So while he's at university, he learns Hebrew and he learns Greek. So he can go back and read the original manuscripts. So that's what he did. He began to study the Bible in Greek. And, and while he's studying the Bible, he finds this doctrine called justification by faith alone, in Christ alone. And he is radically saved. He puts his faith in Jesus Christ. And he just wants to tell everybody about it. He, he's compelled to just, and I mean, the, he's, teach, he's talking to the church. He's trying to change everything. But he decides, you know what? I need to put an English translation of the Bible, a true translation, in the hands of my uh, countrymen. One of his most famous quotes, if you ever look up Tyndale, this is his quote. He's debating with a priest one day, and he says this, If God spares my life before many years, I'll cause a boy that drives a plow to know more of the Scriptures than you do. Talking to the priest. He said, If God spares my life, I'll make a plow boy know the Bible better than you. And he did exactly that. He started at age 29 in 1523. He wanted to do it the right way. He went to the church, and he asked the church for permission and funds to, uh, to, to, to translate the New Testament into English. Uh, the church denied his request. He went back again. They just kept denying, denying, denying. So he finally was convinced he would never do it in England. So he went to Germany. And in 1525, uh, his New Testament emerged. It was the first translation from Greek into English. Uh, one of the, Sir Thomas More, who was uh, one of the, the English church members, uh, I forget exactly what his title was, he said this, this translation is not worthy to be called Christ's Testament, but either Tyndale's own testament or the testament of his master, the Antichrist. 
So the church was not happy about this. Now, there were two major differences between Wycliffe and Tyndale. Number one, Tyndale's is a true translation because he did it from the original Greek. The other difference is, is he did it after the printing press was invented. So now they didn't have to handwrite them anymore. They could roll them off the uh, printing presses. Over the next 10 years, from 1525, he's hunted. Uh, they, 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 they call him a heretic and an outlaw. They issue an arrest warrant for him. Uh, up to five government agents chase him all over Europe. He has to move from country to country and city to city, and he, and he keeps working on revising. And he, the first thing he did was put out a New Testament. And then he did, like, I think the book of Psalms and some other. I mean, he was, he was trying to do it all, but he could never settle down because they were on him, on him, on him. And he did do exactly what he said. He, he translated for the plowboy. Some of the phrases in the Bible that you and I just take for granted, this is all Tyndale. Things like, knock and it shall be open, in the twinkling of an eye, a moment in time, seek and you shall find, eat, drink, and be merry, let there be light, my brother's keeper, the salt of the earth, a law unto themselves, gave up the ghosts, the signs of the times, that's all Tyndale. I could go on and on and on. Very simple phrases that people could hear, and they were beautiful, and you could remember them, and the common people just absolutely loved it. He even made up words that eventually found their way. The word Passover is his word. The word peacemaker, he coined that word. The word scapegoat. Even the word beautiful is a word that did not exist in the English language before, before Tyndale uh, invented it. So we, he had an incredible impact on the language we speak today. I mentioned earlier there's no correct spelling in that day. The Tyndale Bible really, the way he spelled the words, kind of that really influenced spelling uh, as you'll see in a minute, I'll show you an example. It certainly uh, wasn't the end of the spelling, but it certainly uh, influenced. He would never finish his Bible, by the way. He did the New Testament, and he did several Old Testament books, but he would never finish. Uh, he's living in the Netherlands. He's betrayed by a friend. He's delivered into the hands of government agents. They take him back to England. Uh, they convict him as a heretic, put him in prison. And on Friday, October the 6th, 1536, they march him to the town square. They tie him to a beam. They put a rope and a chain around his neck. They add gunpowder to the, to the straw around him. They set it on fire, and they strangle him. And he dies there that day. But what he, he's murdered, by the way, and this is his crime, for translating the Bible into English. You see, the Bible that you and I have in our hands... People died for that. This isn't pretend stuff. People literally died for that. They went against the church. They went against political powers. They went against, the whole world was against them. And they didn't care. They believed that much that the Bible should be in the language of the people that we, can, that, that we should be able to read. Now, what he started could not be stopped. Uh, in fact, while he was in prison... His assistant, a guy by the name of Miles Coverdale, in 1535, came out with what's known as the Coverdale Bible. Uh, it was the first complete Bible printed in English. Remember, the, all the other Bibles had to be handwritten. This was the very first one that came off the, the complete Bible, came off the printed press that was in English. He didn't know Greek, so it wasn't the best translation. He took Tyndale's work and he kind of supplemented it with some transla translations from the Latin Vulgate. Um, but it, again, it was a complete Bible. Uh, in two years later, 
a guy by the name of John Rogers who wrote uh, under the pen name of Thomas Matthew. He came out with something called the Matthews Bible. Uh, the Matthews Bible was the first Bible that, er- that had commentary notes. So he added, this is going to be funny in a minute. Um, he added about 2,000 notes to it. Uh, he will only live 18 more years. You got to understand, you know how today we, in- we have, uh, it's a weird thing. You got to go back and study. You know how we have Democrats and then Republicans and then Democrats and Republicans? Well, back then they had Protestants and then Catholics. Protestants and then Catholics. So if you're under the pro- if you're a Protestant and you're under the Protestant king, you're doing okay. But as soon as that Protest- uh, Catholic queen comes, you're going to die. And that's what happened to him. So he literally publishes his Bible uh, with the permission of Henry VIII. But then when Henry VIII's sister, uh, wasn't his sister, but uh, Mary Tudor, the, y'all have heard of Bloody Mary, Queen of Scots, when she comes up, she's Catholic, so she's killing Protestants, and, and Thomas Matthew was one of the ones that she killed. Um, his Bible is sometimes called the Wife Beater's Bible. And here's why. Remember I told you he added notes. In 1 Peter 3, 7, it says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. He added this note. If the wife be not obedient and helpful unto her husband, he should endeavor to beat the fear of God into her. (laughs) That's true. So it was kind of embarrassing. Uh, It was a good Bible. It it was a good Bible. It was a a great translation, but the whole everybody was really embarrassed of his notes. Um, So... Because they were, so they, this led to something called the Great Bible in 1539. So Henry VIII, again, he's Protestant. He orders a Bible should be, an English Bible should be placed in every church, okay? But when he issued his edict, he said it had to be one book of the whole Bible of the largest volume. Well, it turned out that Matthew's Bible was the biggest. So the Matthews Bible went into every church, and then everybody was embarrassed because it was the wife beater's Bible. So they basically came out with a new translation, and it's huge. It's called the Great Bible because of its size, and they would literally put it in every uh, church. Uh, 1560, you got the Geneva Bible. What, the reason it's called the Geneva Bible, uh, when Queen Mary uh, came to, uh, uh, she came to rule, all the Protestants had to leave England. They all went to Switzerland, to Geneva, and there they produced what's called uh, the Geneva Bible. It was the first translation done by a committee. It's the first English Bible with verse divisions. It's the first English Bible to use italics to show words have been added to make it more readable. Um, it was the Bible, by the way, the pilgrims brought over on the Mayflower. So when they came over on the Mayflower, they had the Geneva Bible. It's also known as the Breaches Bible. Why would it be known as the Breaches Bible? Because in Genesis 3, 7, it says, Then the eyes of them both were open, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig tree leaves together and made themselves breaches. <laughs> so it was. <laughs> this is all true. I ain't making any of this stuff up. Uh, the Bishop's Bible, 1568, it was terrible. Nobody bought it. Nobody used it. It didn't last very long. And then 1611, you have the King James Version. So less than 100 years after Tyndale is, is burned at the stake, the authorized King James Version is released. By the way, 90% of it comes directly from Tyndale. That's how good his translation uh, was. I want to end very quickly here. I'm going to give you, I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 13. 11 through 13, I'm going to read it in Tyndale, I'm going to read it in the King James, and then I'm going to read it in the New American Standard. This is Tyndale's translation 
of 1 Corinthians 13, directly from the Greek. He says, when I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I imagined as a child. But as soon as I was a man, I put away all childishness. Now we see in a glass, even in a dark speaking, but then we shall see face to face. Now I know imperfectly, but then I shall know, even as I am known. Now about is faith, hope, and love, even these three, but the chief of these is love. Does that sound familiar? This is the King James, 1611. When I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know, even as I am also known. And now about is faith, hope, charity, these three, but the greatest of these is charity. And then this is the New American Standard in modern English. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I also have been fully known. Now faith, hope, love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. I tell you, we owe a lot. Not just, and we're going to see next week, God himself has just been at work. He's always working. Even when we can't see it, he's always working. He's always preserving his word. Thank God for men, and I've been thinking about this a lot. Thank God for men who stood up for the word of God in the face of death. Where are we today? Are we willing to stand up today for the word of God in the face of no matter what may come? Father, we thank you for your word. We love you. Appreciate these great men, God. Thank you for, for, for sustaining them. Thank you for pouring grace into their hearts. Thank you for, for encouraging them and strengthening them uh, in the face of incredible obstacles. God, I pray you do the same for us. God, raise up mighty men and women here at River of Life, men and women who will stand for the Word of God in the face of resistance and obstacles, no matter what may come. We will not turn. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this message from River of Life. If this message has touched you today, or if you need someone to pray with, please contact us at 850 850- Nine two six one two zero zero, or email us at info at rolcrawfordville.com. We also want to encourage you to visit us this Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. in Crawfordville. Please visit us online at rolcrawfordville.com for more information and directions.